I want to go to a passage that we looked at several years ago and look at it again because it's such an encouraging one, and I needed some encouragement this week. Psalm 17. Psalm 17. This psalm is a prayer to God, and its content suggests it was written during one of the outlaw periods of David's life, either when he was young and he was on the run from King Saul, who saw him as a threat and wanted him dead, or this could also be from David's later life when he was in exile after his son Absalom had wrested the throne from him. And I think of that and realize David's life was bookended by these massive trials, his public ministry again, bookended by these times of severe affliction during which he was a fugitive, both as a younger man and as an older man, burdened with grief, living under severe hardship, tormented by every conceivable tribulation. David's life was the polar opposite of life in the luxury of a royal palace, except for those few brief years while he was on the throne in Jerusalem. And this psalm is his outcry. It's the outcry of a, of a downtrodden soul. The title simply identifies it as a prayer of David, and it's the outpouring of his troubled heart from one of those difficult periods either near the beginning or near the end of his ministry. And it reminds us that even the best of saints often suffer the worst of sorrows, and when they do, it is right that they pour out their hearts to God in perfect candor. The best prayers are honest and passionate expressions of earnest hearts, and and that is true whether your heart is full of rejoicing or whether you are in severe distress. Be honest in your praying. There is never any encouragement in Scripture to stifle our frustrations and our disappointments when we come to God in prayer. And in fact, if there is one time when you can be righteously, totally transparent, it's when you pray because God already knows our hearts, and He encourages us to come boldly and to pour out our hearts to Him the way a little child would come to a tender, loving father. That's how prayer should be. And one thing that is instantly obvious to anyone in ministry is that there are a lot of downtrodden people. There are people right in this room who bear unimaginable sorrows, people who struggle with grief and pain and physical affliction, loneliness and despair and overwhelming discouragement, hurts and disappointments and depression and heartache, troubles of all kinds. And here is a prayer for those people. I'm not the type of person who struggles very frequently with melancholy. I know what that feels like, but the truth is the Lord has blessed me with a generally cheerful nature. There are times when I do get gloomy and discouraged, usually when deadlines loom and my workload becomes overwhelming, and that happens at least three or four times a year. So I do know what despondency and discouragement feel like, and I know that a feeling of depression itself can become a a burden, an energy-draining burden. And in fact, in my experience, a depressed state of mind is one of the most difficult of all burdens to bear. If we're not careful, we get even more depressed about the fact that we are depressed, and life starts to look bleaker and bleaker, and the weight of that burden just crushes hope and snuffs out the fire of life 
And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. David was in that state of mind when he wrote this psalm. Whether this was written early when he was on the run from Saul or, or later when he was hiding from his own son Absalom, David was suffering here from the loss of everything that was rightfully his. Those two periods, both at the beginning and at the end of his career, had a lot in common. Both times, people who should have supported him abandoned him. He was cut off from home and family and friends, and he was living the life of an outcast and a vagabond, suffering public disgrace and dishonor that he did not deserve. He was lonely and disconsolate and heartbroken, and it seemed like his life was disintegrating. And in that state of mind, most of us are tempted, I think, to brood and pout. David always turned instead to prayer. And it's fortunate for us because he wrote those prayers in the Psalms. And this Psalm is one of the classic results of that. It's one of many prayers David recorded for us while he was struggling with depression and resentment. And I'm I'm glad that so many of these prayers are included in the Word of God. I find they are a better tonic than a hundred counseling sessions because they show us the way through our miseries. The psalmist never failed to rise above the troubles and and refocus our vision on something better. And, And that is the case with this psalm. It's a wonderful model of prayer in its candor, its simplicity, its brevity, and its passion. This is a psalm full of wonderfully rich lessons about the God to whom we pray. Now remember, David was a man after God's own heart, and his prayers are probably the best barometer of what that means. When Scripture says he's a man after God's own heart, you want to know what that means? Read his praying. He lays his heart bare when he comes before the throne of grace. And if you want to understand what it means to be a man or a woman after God's own heart, look at the heart of the psalmist as he reveals his heart to us in his prayers. This one has four stanzas. It's neatly organized for us. Each of the four stanzas is a unique plea, and I want to take it a stanza at a time. We'll let the four stanzas themselves be our outline, and we'll look at them one at a time. The first is verses 1 through 4. The theme here is, hear me, hear me. He opens with a cry for God to listen to his plea. And in fact, notice three times in the first verse alone, he pleads for God to hear him. Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence, let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. You've tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me, and you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips I have avoided the ways of the violent. Now, notice several things about this first stanza. First, it's a cry. It's the spontaneous outpouring of a troubled and agitated heart. And it's urgent. It's emotional. It's earnest. It's an expression David simply could not keep bottled up. This is not a rehearsed oration. He's not reciting something that he'd written ahead of time. He's not trying to impress the Lord with his eloquence. 
He isn't aiming for literary style. He is simply troubled, deeply troubled and distressed. And it's the bitterness and pain of those feelings that compels him to cry out to God. Spurgeon said about this psalm, a cry, a cry is a brief thing and a bitter thing. A cry has in it much meaning and no music. You cannot set a cry to music. Spurgeon said, the sound of a cry grates on the ear. It rasps the heart. It startles. It grieves the minds of those who hear it. Cries are not for musicians, but for mourners. Think about it. A cry is the most natural thing in the world. It doesn't require any special skill or eloquence. It's the first sound we make as infants, and it's the most basic way of letting our needs be made known. A cry is is full of passion and, and not ornate language. It's earnest rather than elegant. And that is how all of our praying ought to be. The point is to open our hearts honestly to God. We're not trying when we pray. We're not supposed to be trying to achieve a flowery literary style. And this was the kind of cry that simply couldn't be suppressed. And for that reason, this psalm is notable, as I said, for its honesty. In verse 1, David says, it comes from lips free of deceit, unlike the public prayers of those Pharisees, unlike too many of our prayers. This one is sincere and truthful, and it's as straightforward as possible. He's saying this for the benefit of God to whom he's praying, not for the benefit of those who would later read the psalm. He pleads with God to hear his cause because he is convinced it is a just cause. Before coming to God with this prayer, David had already examined his heart and cleared his conscience. These are issues he has obviously brought before the Lord before, perhaps again and again, and he pleads his own uprightness. Verse 3, you've tried my heart, you've visited me by night, you have tested me, and you will find nothing. Now, this is not an expression of pharisaical self-righteousness. It may sound like that, if you don't think it through. But David, obviously we know David, and he is not claiming here that he is utterly free from sin in every respect because the Psalms are also full of his confessions. We know that he was very aware that he was conceived in sin and and thoroughly sinful. So what's he saying? In this instance, he's merely saying that the troubles that have befallen him are not because of his own faults. This is not recompense for his sin. There's no conscious hypocrisy or careless taint of of wickedness in his prayer. He's examined his heart. In fact, he says, God has visited him in the night and examined his heart and brought nothing to light. So whatever the reason for these misfortunes, it wasn't something brought on him because of some hidden sin or unconfessed transgression. These are not the direct consequences of some sin he had committed. He had done, clearly, the the self-examination, the hard work of examining his own heart before he ever brought this petition before the Lord, and his own heart and conscience were clear before the Lord. Whatever sins he was aware of, he had confessed and accepted the Lord's forgiveness. And in fact, in verse 3, he says, "'I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress.'" 
With regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. Although he might have been tempted to lash back at his enemies or complain about his circumstances or even murmur against God or otherwise employ insult or abuse or some other verbal assault in return for whatever wicked treatment he had received, he hadn't done that. He had purposed not to let this trial cause him to sin with his mouth, and with the help of God's Word, he had been faithful to that pledge. But now he could no longer keep silence, and so he calls out with this prayer that is really a cry, it's an outburst of passion, and he pleads with God to hear him, which is significant. You know, what do most of us do when we feel depressed or weighed down with troubles or when we start feeling like we're an outcast? The truth is, and I'll confess this to you, it is a sinful tendency of all of us to want to broadcast the complaint to talk to other people, sometimes as many people as possible, and seek their sympathy first of all. You know, we can't wait to go to our Bible study group and pour out our complaints during the prayer request time. And there's nothing wrong with seeking help from others when we're carrying a heavy burden. That's a good thing to do, but it's not the first remedy that we should seek. We should do what David did. We should do this and and take those complaints, first of all, to the Lord. And in fact, there's a great lesson to learn from David's example in this psalm. When you are seeking the support and encouragement of others, do that, but save your complaining for God alone in your private prayer life. You can be as honest with Him as you like. Pray like David did from an unfeigned heart, and you can be sure... God will hear your prayer. Stanza 1, stanza 2 starts with verse 5. This is David's second petition, verses 5 through 7, hold me. Here is more evidence that David's plea in verses 3 and 4 is not a self-righteous boast. He acknowledges that the only way he can keep from sinning is by the Lord's power. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. You can tell here from what he says that David knows he lacks the stability to walk this path without slipping. So he pleads with the Lord to hold him, to keep him from slipping. He's acknowledging God as his Savior, verse 7, the Savior of all those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Not only has God saved him from sin, he acknowledges that God alone can save him from his enemies. Listen to another psalm. This is Psalm 33, verses 16 through 20. He writes, the king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. There is 
And I hope you hear it. There is in this an implicit acknowledgement of the sovereignty of God. David expresses his conviction that God and only God has the power to save him from his enemies. And he seems to have full confidence that God will ultimately save him. So what does that say about the fact that for now, those enemies seem to have the upper hand? David realizes that God in His sovereignty has permitted this. He may not know the reason, but he knows if God does it, He has a good reason. He has a purpose in it. And only God can direct His steps through the midst of it. Verse 5 in the King James and the New King James Version is translated as a plea, uphold my steps in your paths that my footstep may not slip. I like that translation. It's a prayer request. It's not a boast. David recognizes how dependent he is on the grace of God to keep him from falling. Unless God Himself upholds our steps, our feet will slide. I know that from experience. I think David did too. And then in verse 6, the psalmist expresses confidence that God will hear him. I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. But just the same, he prays once more for the Lord to listen. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. Hear me, he prays, and then hold me. And now here's a third plea, verse 8, hide me. Hear me, hold me. Now hide me, verses 8 through 12. He seeks the, both protection and comfort from the Lord. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. From the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me, they close their hearts to pity. With their mouths they speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He's like a lion eager to tear, as a young lion lurking in ambush. Here David is describing his situation in graphic language, and it's desperate. His enemies had him surrounded, verse 11. He pictures them like a hungry lion that had tracked him and now cornered him, and and now they're crouching, ready to pounce. David, as he writes this, is probably holed up in a cave just out of sight, and, and now he prays for the Lord's protection. And I love this expression, keep me as the apple of your eye. I used to hear that expression a lot from my dad. He would tell my mom that she's the apple of his eye. And I wondered what that meant. I I thought, you know, as a young child, I thought maybe it has something to do with a shiny red apple that he has his eye on because it looks good or or something like that. (laughs) But that is not the idea. He's speaking about the eye itself, the eyeball. That's the apple of your eye, the the round thing. It's an apple, like your eye. He's he's actually more... specific than that in the Hebrew, this is a reference to the pupil, that little black spot in the center of your eye. And the Hebrew word here doesn't mean apple at all, it's an expression that means the little man. So if you translated this exactly literally, it would be, keep me as the little man of your eye. Somebody pointed this out to me once, and I'd never noticed it, but if you look into someone else's eye right into the pupil and look very carefully into the dead center of that little dark spot, you actually see yourself reflected back in a kind of miniature mirror image. Try that sometime with your spouse or your girlfriend, seminary students. 
so, but if you look at the pupil directly at it, it actually looks like there's a little man in there looking out at you. It's, it's a reflection of yourself. And so in the Hebrew language, the pupil, that, that center spot on your eye, was known as the little man of the eye. And so David is saying, protect me like you protect that. Protect me like the pupil of your eye. It's one of the most tender, delicate, and most sensitive parts of the human body, your eye. You know, I've read about people who have eye surgery where they actually cut into that. It makes me squeamish just to think of it. Probably you too. Sensitive spot. And because of that, God has built into our bodies a a series of defense mechanisms that protect our eyes. First of all, the eye socket itself is surrounded by bone. So your eye is set back into your head so that your, your cheekbone protects it from below and your forehead protects it from above, and then it's further protected by eyelashes and eyelids, and, and there's always a, a thin film of, of tears to lubricate and protect your eye. It is so sensitive that it feels even the tiniest little dust particle. I wear contacts, and occasionally there's like a little thread or something that gets underneath my contact when I put it in if I'm not careful. And... Nothing is more annoying, and and you can hardly open your eye to blink it back out. There are not many parts of your body that would be so sensitive that you could feel a microscopic speck like that. But the remarkable thing is the reflex that causes you to blink when anything comes close to your eye. It's almost an involuntary reflex, and it's the quickest reflex you have, the blink of an eye. We use that expression to talk about something that's very quick because your natural human instinct is to protect your eyes no matter what. And if you wear contact lenses, you know what I mean. You know, when I started wearing contacts in college, they were the hard ones, and uh, it was really hard for me to learn to stick something in my eye. And in fact, to this day, I have to hold my eyelids open with the other hand in order to put the contact in. If I tried to insert a lens without forcing myself to hold the eyelid open, I can't do it because that urge to blink is just too powerful. And David is pleading with God to protect him the way a man protects the pupils of his eye, without delay, without hesitation. In the moment the threat of danger appears, he's saying, protect me like that, reflexively, swiftly, in the blink of an eye. And then he switches metaphors, second half of verse 8, hide me in the shadow of your wings, which speaks of the protection a bird like an eagle would give to its young. It evokes the idea of shelter and warmth and hiding, and David is asking that God would not only hide him from his enemies, but also he wants a place where he can hide so that he doesn't have to see the threat that they pose to him. He doesn't want them to find him, but more important, I think he wants to be sheltered from having to see them or think about them or worry about them. He'd prefer to be like a little baby bird under its mother's wings, unaware of and unconcerned about the dangers that hover overhead. I can relate to that. You probably can too. It's it's one thing to turn your worries over to the Lord by faith. It's another thing to really be rid of those worries to forget about our concerns so that we are truly and genuinely 
anxious for nothing. You know, we quote those verses, 1 Peter 5, 7, casting all your care on Him because He cares for you. And Philippians 4, 6, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And we do that, or we try to, but I think all of us have the tendency to want to hang on to our anxieties as if we don't really completely trust the Lord to be concerned enough on our behalf. And so David is praying that God would shelter him in a way that kept him hidden from those who sought to trouble him, but also kept them hidden from him as well, so he didn't have to think about it. It's a huge request because David is, at that moment, literally surrounded by enemies, verse 9, deadly enemies who surround me. And look at verse 10, they close their hearts to pity. The literal Hebrew expression says, they are enclosed in their own fat, which is to picture them as smug, sort of self-satisfied, self-sufficient. From a human perspective, David's enemies appeared to have the upper hand against him, and their hearts were calloused and fat and totally closed off, hostile towards David. They wanted only to destroy him. They had chased him until he couldn't run any further, and their hearts were set on his destruction, and now he desperately needs God's help. And that's his fourth supplication, verses 13 through 15, help me. And this petition brings us to the real point of the prayer. It's a desperate plea for God's help. Arise, O Lord, confront Him, subdue Him, deliver my soul from the wicked by Your sword, from men by Your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children. They leave their abundance to their infants. As for me, I shall behold Your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with Your likeness." Now, several things to notice about this. First, you see David's great faith even in what he himself describes as a seemingly hopeless situation. He has just described how his enemy has surrounded him and and they're crouching like a lion ready to pounce. And now we see that he has nevertheless complete confidence that the Lord can deliver him out of even uh, an apparently hopeless situation like this. Because the Lord wields a sword that no wickedness can stand against. And in fact, on second thought, the Lord doesn't need a sword, verse 14. He can deliver David with nothing but his hand. And second, notice how David describes his enemies as men whose vision is totally earthbound. This is the point of of these few verses. They have their portion in this life. In other words, they're rich with treasure. Their houses are filled with children. They've received these blessings from God, but they don't see beyond the earthly value of the blessings. Verse 14, they they are satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. In other words, they're planning already how to divide the family estate among the children, because that's as far into the future as they can see. They have thought no further ahead than that. All of their hopes and expectations are tied to this life and this temporal world. They are utter worldlings with no hope of heaven, no concern about eternity, 
And in that myopic vision lies the seed of all their wickedness. They are infatuated with this world, and therefore they are enemies of God. Because to be a friend of the world is to be an enemy with God, Scripture says. David's worldview is totally different. Verse 15 is one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. As for me, he says, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. He's saying this. He's saying, my hope is beyond this life and beyond this world, and what I'm looking for is something that won't come in this life. What I'm looking for is something eternal. I will be satisfied, but not until I awaken with your likeness. So in other words, the the center of his greatest hope and longing is something that could only be realized in heaven. It's not something that pertains to this life, and therefore it's not something that can be shaken by the troubles of this life. This is the climax and the culmination of David's prayer. This is the real and ultimate answer to his frustrations. You see, it's true that God is able to deliver him out of his earthly troubles. It's true that God has the power to thwart all of his enemies' murderous plans. God could solve David's earthly problems once and for all. He has the power to do that. But you know what? If that happened, it still wouldn't be as satisfying as the ultimate thing David is looking forward to. And even if it didn't happen, even if his enemies somehow did bring about his earthly demise, the day would still come and certainly come when David would behold God's face in righteousness and awaken in his likeness, and that would more than compensate for all of the earthly troubles David was enduring. Here is an anchor for any believer who is downcast. Keep your center of focus on eternity. Don't be distracted by the anguish and hardship of this life. A time is coming, and shortly, when all of that will be done away and we will be perfectly and eternally satisfied. Cling to that hope. Hope is the biblical term for that perspective on life. When Paul lists faith, hope, and love as the three supreme virtues, it's this forward-looking expectation that that's what he means by hope. So when we use the word hope, you know, we, we, we use it wrong most of the time. We talk about hope, we're, we're usually speaking about a vague desire that may or may not be fulfilled and, and probably won't. You know, for a lot of people, the idea of hope is tied up in a, in a vain wish that they might someday win the lottery. Or you might even occasionally hear people say, uh, even someone like me, yeah, I hope the Cubs have a winning season. Maybe that kind of hope will be realized, but it probably won't be. That's actually a corruption of the biblical idea of hope. Don't, when you see the word hope in Scripture, don't think in those terms, because in its biblical sense, the word hope means something that is sure and steadfast. That was the original connotation of the word. It's a sure and certain expectation. The true meaning of hope is filled with assurance and certainty and conviction. Notice how emphatic David is, verse 15, as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. There is confidence 
and security in those words. That is what Scripture means by hope. It's something we can cling to as a certainty. And here's the amazing thing about this prayer. It started out as a plea for help. It ends up as an expression of hope. While David is praying, his help comes. In Isaiah 65, verse 24, God makes this promise. He says, it will come to pass that before they call, I will answer, and while they are still speaking, I will hear. That's exactly what happened here. While David was praying for help, the help he needed most came. It didn't come in the form he might have envisioned. It wasn't a miraculous and instantaneous deliverance from all these earthly troubles. The clouds didn't open for a bolt of lightning to consume all of David's adversaries. The crisis wasn't swept away, but something even better happened. The Lord used this prayer to refocus David's heart. And then He filled him with a supernatural hope and confidence that lifted him above his problems. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, that's not the kind of answer to my prayer that I want. I want the Lord to take the problems out of my life. I'd rather be rid of the problems than be filled with hope in the midst of them. And if that's how you think, you don't appreciate the power of this kind of hope. This is a greater deliverance than deliverance from an external enemy. It's a spiritual deliverance from David's own fear and frustration. It's an uplifting, energizing baptism of hope and earnest expectation. It focuses David's vision where he needs to be focused, on eternal things, on the assurance of ultimate victory, on the confidence of a final outcome that would make all of these trials worthwhile. And as David clung to that hope, his fear and his frustration are overwhelmed with confidence. You can see it happen in his words. Confidence and gratitude and a spirit of assurance and reliance on the Lord. And that kind of hope is a panacea for human woes. No matter what kind of depression or anxiety or fear or distress you might be suffering from, here is the cure. Fix your gaze on eternity and set your hope on the assurance that a time will come when you see the face of God in righteousness and you will bear the perfect likeness of Christ. The Apostle John wrote of this hope. This is the great hope of all Christians. First John verses 2 and 3 of chapter 3, 1 John, "'Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is.'" We'll see His face in righteousness. And then he goes on to say, anyone who thus hopes purifies himself even as He is pure. So it's not only a panacea for our woes, it's one of the great engines of our sanctification. If you struggle with sinful thoughts or evil imaginations, fears, doubts, worries, depression, anxiety, or, or any of the other sins that are related to a downcast heart. Here's the answer. Fix your hope on the guarantee of that future triumph, and you will find it has a purifying effect, and it gives you a motive to purify yourself. In fact, notice five things about hope, this 
virtue that keeps us gazing into eternity. Five things here, practical benefits you get from this sort of look into eternity, this anchoring our hope in eternity. Five benefits. Number one, it's the cure for envy. David contrasts himself, verse 14, with men of the world whose portion is in this life, filled with treasure, satisfied with children, they, have their, they leave their abundance to their infants. In other words, here are men who have every kind of earthly blessing you could ever crave. They have treasure, they have children, they have more than they will ever need so that their greatest worry is how to divide the legacy between the kids. That sounds like a secure and comfortable life, doesn't it? Wrong. It's emptiness. These men have their portion in their, this life. In other words, David's saying that is their portion. That is the only bequest they will ever receive from the Lord. And it's all temporal. It's all earthly. Moth and rust will eventually eat it away to nothing, and within a few generations, all of it will be forgotten and spent. And counts for nothing in eternity. These are they're men like the rich men in the man in the story of Lazarus and the afterlife. You remember in this life that rich man was clothed in purple and fine linen and he fared sumptuously every day, scripture says. He had every worldly thing he could ever want and he was satisfied with it. He didn't know the Lord. He didn't care about eternity. He didn't care even about the righteous man Lazarus outside his gate covered with sores who was so poor that he would willingly eat the scraps that fell from the rich man's table, but instead those scraps were given to the dogs. And Lazarus's only earthly comfort, Jesus said, was that those dogs licked his sores. I can't imagine a picture more pathetic He was as miserable and as downtrodden in this life as it is possible to be, but in the afterlife it was a completely different picture. Lazarus was exalted, Jesus said, carried into Abraham's bosom. In other words, he was given the place of highest honor at Abraham's table, and the rich man was reduced to begging for a drop of water in hell. That's how it would be with David's enemies. And David doesn't envy these men. He doesn't seek what they have and wish it was his because his focus is set on eternity. And that cured him from the tendency to covet earthly things. You ever found yourself fantasizing about what you would do if someone gave you a winning lottery ticket? You know, you plan how you'd spend the money and you enter... Every time I read where some person won $200 million, I find myself imagining... You know, what would it be like to have a windfall like that? That is not a healthy fantasy to indulge in. In fact, it's covetousness. I just confess to you that I broke the Tenth Commandment, and I repent of that. The next time you catch yourself thinking that way, remind yourself that as a believer in Christ, you have an infinitely greater hope. And it's a certainty, not a wish like winning the lottery. It's a certainty. You will see God's face in righteousness. You will awaken in His likeness. That's what will truly satisfy you and eternally satisfy you. And if you want to feed your mind with thoughts of what it will be like to be rich, feast on the hope of what will surely be yours in eternity. It's a great cure for covetousness. 
Second, it's a cure for fear. By the time we get to the end of this psalm, no longer is David fearful of what his foes might do to him. I mean, what is the absolute worst they could do? Kill him? Then he would awaken satisfied. Could they torture him and cause him earthly pain? For a while, yes, but he was guaranteed an eternity of perfect blessing. Psalm 118, verse 6, the Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Psalm 56, verse 4, in God I have put my trust, I will not fear what flesh can do unto me. Psalm 3, verses 5 and 6, the Lord sustained me, I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people that have set themselves against me round about. And the Psalms are full of similar expressions. Listen to Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked, even my enemies and my foes, come upon me to eat up my flesh, they stumbled and fell. Though a host should encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war should rise against me, in this I will be confident." This is from David, who who faced so many desperate situations, literally his life in jeopardy for most of his earthly life. How could he rise above that fear? Because he clung to an eternal hope that overwhelmed all that earthly fear. Hope is a great cure for fear. Third, it's a cure for doubt. Listen to his confidence at the end of the psalm. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. He's saying, I am certain. I know this will happen. No matter what else happens to me here on on this earth, this much is certain. I will behold your face. I shall be satisfied. You can hear the hope in David as it overpowers and erases all whatever doubt and uncertainty he had about his future. Fourth, it's a cure for depression. This is the culmination of this psalm. This is how David cured his depression. Nothing lifts me out of depression faster than some careful reflection about the promises God has made for an eternity where there will be no more tears or sorrow or crying or pain. Romans 8, and 23, the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly. That's talking about Christians. We do suffer, we do groan, but listen to the rest of the verse. As we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, and verse 24, we are saved by hope. Now, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? In other words, if you insist on seeing the fulfillment of God's promises before you lay hold of those promises, then you forfeit the virtue of hope. One of the reasons God delays His help is for this merciful and gracious purpose. He wants us to learn the blessings of hope. Verse 25, but if we hope for what we do not see... We wait for it with patience. That's Romans 8. So hope is the cure for envy, it's the cure for fear, it's the cure for doubt, it's the cure for depression, and now finally, it's a cure for frustration. Notice how in the brief course of this short prayer, 
David has moved from frustration, verse 1, to perfect satisfaction at the end. He begins by pleading with God to hear as he sets forth what he's convinced is a just cause. He's frustrated by the injustice of this undeserved calamity that has surrounded him, but by the end of the prayer he is satisfied by the undeserved blessing that will be his in eternity. You see the same pattern in a lot of the Psalms. David often begins with a tone of frustration and anxiety only to end with an expression of confidence that stems from this virtue of hope. So what changed here? Was it David's circumstances? No. This is a short psalm. His circumstances didn't change before he got to the end here. His perspective did. In the beginning, his own troubles filled his vision so that that was all he was seeing. But in the process of his prayer, God refocused his vision so that he saw beyond those troubles and found he could see more clearly as he looked further into the future, and he anchors his soul in the promise of the ultimate so that he could let go of the frustration of that which is merely immediate. Such a hope is possible only through Christ because He is the one who redeems us from sin, from the curse of sin, from the consequences of our sin. He lifts us above all of that and secures the hope of heaven on our behalf. He did that by dying for our sins. If heaven was a reward for my own righteousness, if heaven is something that I I need to earn by my own merit through my own good works, my life would be dominated by an oppressive sense of dread, a fearful expectation of judgment, and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries in biblical terms. Because frankly, I know I don't deserve heaven. And if, as Jesus taught, you must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, if the only standard God approves is perfect righteousness, if, as James says, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point is guilty of all, if that were all there was to the truth, then I would be doomed. My own heart would confirm that verdict against me. But heaven is the sure hope of all who believe because... Christ met that standard of absolute perfection, and He died to pay the price of the sins of believers, people who are united with Him by faith, so that they could be covered with that perfect righteousness. That's the gospel. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. That's 1 Peter 2.24. And 1 Peter 1.3, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. And that hope, that very hope, is what David is expressing in our psalm. Romans 8, 24, in this hope we are saved. If you lack that hope, you need to lay hold of Christ by faith. And if you are in Christ but you're feeling the weight of this world's troubles, You need to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. That's Hebrews 6, verses 18 and 19. And it describes precisely what this psalm celebrates, the hope of eternal redemption that stands as a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul even in times of earthly distress. Remember that and 
let your mind go to that truth every time you find yourself burdened by the cares of this life. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is in His glory. We'll reflect that glory. And that hope is the cure for all of the troubles of this life. And it points us to the true satisfaction of all of our desires. Whatever you desire, whatever you you long for the most, the only sure satisfaction of that desire is this vision of Christ's glory. And that glorious moment when we see Him and are made like Him will come when we awake in the Lord's presence with our hearts and souls and minds all perfectly conformed to His likeness, and we will be satisfied with that forever. And that promise puts all of the troubles of this life in perspective, doesn't it? I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us if you trust Christ. Let's pray. Lord, strengthen our hearts to bear the adversities of this life in a fallen world. By Your grace, fix our hearts on the hope that is set before us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to pastor and teacher Phil Johnson. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by Phil Johnson. All rights reserved.